Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Eclectic Humanist, episode, oh, I don't know, 12, I suppose? It's been a while since I've spoken into my microphone for reasons other than my job, so I am <laughs> quite far behind the, uh, the weekly schedule that I had in mind when I started doing this in the spring. And the truth is, I've had a few things on my mind, so... Rather than uh, continue or conclude the, the series that I was doing, or I am doing, on the attack of the fundamentalists, which I will conclude, I think, next episode, I think now I just want to talk about some things that have been going through my head. And this won't be an hour-long episode, certainly. It, uh, it'll probably be on the short side, and probably also the most personal thing that I've, I've done yet. Like all of you, I'm sure, I've spent a lot of time over the last many months thinking, just thinking, about, about what our world looks like, about how our respective societies are dealing with various crises, and how historically we have responded to other challenges at other times. When I first started having these thoughts, and thinking I would like to talk about them with you, it was Sunday, September 13th, and I remember that very well because there were a couple of specific things on my mind. One, it was six months to the day that my university closed down, that school in New Brunswick ended, that my part of the country, at least, and that my part of the world went into, went into hard lockdown, and... Looking back exactly half a year later, I found myself thinking how surreal, how unreal that seemed at the time. I remember walking onto campus even before the announcement was made that we would not be coming back on Monday. It was a Friday. Saying goodbye to colleagues, to students, not knowing when I would see them again. The last class I actually sat in, it was only half full. And nobody knew what we were going to do. Nobody knew if or when we would be together again. Now, many of those students have gone back to their respective countries. I have no idea if I'm ever going to see them again. I never got to say goodbye. None of them got to say goodbye. But, and I know everybody listening to this has gone through the same thing, this sudden transformation that was in many ways completely foreseeable that for a long time everything seemed unreal, surreal, suspended. The roads were quiet. There were so few planes in the, in the sky that, uh, that Earth's albedo actually decreased. We were reflecting less light back into the, uh, back, back into the solar system than we do when the, uh, when the upper atmosphere is full of, of jet exhaust. And I remember feeling a, a, a sense on the one hand of, of uncertainty, which everybody shared, I think, and arguing with, with, with friends, with people I respect about how seriously to take this. And on the other hand, I remember a sense of optimism such as I had never felt in my entire life because it has long seemed to me that the social system we're living in now is, I won't say broken, because as others have also pointed out before me, it's doing exactly what it's designed to do. But what it's designed to do 
in its current manifestation is make a handful of people very rich and and to hell with everybody else and i've always believed that we were better than that and i remember having a sense throughout late march and uh and april and into may that this is our chance to be better something over the last few months has dampened that enthusiasm maybe it's the political situation south of the border it probably is i've never seen a country so diseased in my life and i'm not even talking about the virus it's heartbreaking i grew up in windsor ontario which as one former girlfriend who happened to be american once put it that makes you half american and i've always always kind of felt that way i of course have family on both sides of the border i grew up visiting my american cousins i haven't seen them in years but now i've been lucky enough to find other family on the other side of the border and i'm worried i'm worried for them i'm worried for that entire once great country that we're watching crumble while a substantial proportion of its population congratulates itself on the devastation and as i said it is heartbreaking because that is a country that has inspired the world and did once inspire the world and now inspires very little other than mockery derision and contempt and i didn't know i was going to say any of that when i started talking into the microphone i'm just going to let the mic run and whatever comes out comes out because that's only part of what's been on my mind and when i started doing this series when i imagined what this series would be it did include some personal stuff as well as the philosophical and political and mythological stuff that 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 i was doing more regularly during the summer before uh, i realized how how much time teaching from home actually takes and how little time i would have for anything else aside from the bare necessities of parenting but as i said that's only one of the things that was on my mind what's really on my mind is dates days the point that it was exactly 6 months gave me something to mark by nothing of any cosmic significance it's just these are ways that we assign significance they're ways that we use to understand things and that's all when i speak of significant numbers or important dates that's all i mean um those of you who have actually uh sorry about the racket there i just knocked over a book called achilles in vietnam i'm teaching the iliad in uh, in one of my classes and recording a series of lectures on it and as much as <laughs> i've loved that book since oh i first encountered it in 1984 it feels like a completely new book now that i am recording lectures on it but back to the matter at hand what else was on my mind was of course well you know September 13th is only 2 days after September 11th. Um I I think probably all of you can figure that out, you know, because we can, you know, we we can count we're we're pretty bright that way. So of course, like pretty much everybody in North America, that's always a period for me of 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 contemplation, of introspection, of of measuring in the last year. Where's the world gone? How's the world gone? It was 19 years ago that that happened. And It's one of those events that everybody can say where they were and what they were doing. When I grew up, the event that everybody 
talked about knowing exactly where they were going and what they were doing and who they were with was, where were you when Kennedy was shot? And all of a sudden, September 11th, 2001 comes along and that's, that's the new event. That's the one where you always know where you were. It's, it's that marker, that point at which the world changed. Well, March 13th, 2020 is another one of those. So there's these two contending dates, points at which the world changed. Well, in 2020, March 13th, obviously I was at work. I work at a university. And the afternoon when the, uh, when the administration gave the email, there was also a student research fair. And I had a student whom I had mentored towards presenting a paper in this, in this research fair. And of course we went and the feeling in the room after we knew the university was closing, when those students were presenting their papers, the, 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 I can't describe the emotion in the room, the sense of, on the one hand, wanting to cling together, not knowing when we'd ever be able to do this again. And on the other, that everything we were doing somehow seemed suddenly unreal. But then back to that other transformation, that that day on September 11th, 2001, well, where was I then? I was at another university in another part of the world. And the way I found out about that particular catastrophe was um, the phone rang and I was living in South Korea. I wasn't at the university. I was at my home. And when I picked up the phone and it was my sister, I simply assumed that she had called to wish me a happy birthday because September 11th also happens to be my birthday. I turned 36 that day and she was in tears and told me to turn on the television that the United States was under attack. So I did. And I don't need to recount exactly what happened. That's been played over on countless screens and in countless minds over the intervening almost two decades. But what I will say about that is it the next day when I went to work, or maybe it was the following day, I'm not exactly sure, I forget exactly what day of the week it was, that I had to shout, sometimes scream, so that my students, to whom I was teaching ESL at the, uh, at the University of Suwon, could hear me, could hear my voice over the roar of the fighter jets flying low overhead. From where I lived, I could see the, uh, the U.S. airbase at Osan. I could see their lights at night. Went, well, I wasn't terribly close, but close enough. And everything was in the air. Everything was mobilized. And going into Seoul at the, uh, at the main base at, at Yongsan, which no longer exists, they've closed that one down, but there were tank barricades up in front of, of, of the gates to the base. Everything was ready to mobilize on a mo on a moment's notice, because of course the 38th parallel, the uh, the border with North Korea, was only only really a handful of miles north, and the uncertainty, the tension, the being braced for anything, was again a moment of, on the one hand, profound reality, and on the other hand, profound unreality. And and I remember walking through campus, and walking to campus. It was a lovely campus and a lovely walk to get there. Part of the walk took me, if I took the long way, it took me up through the wooded hills. And the path I followed was a path that had existed long enough to be trodden down 
into the soil of the, uh, of the forest, but also I passed by half a dozen foxholes that were remnants of the Korean War. But then I would come down out of the hills behind the, uh, the president's office, the administration building, and walk down the main road of campus. And the way students, the way faculty looked at me, this, this lone white guy, and if you're a lone white guy in Korea, the odds of you being any particular nationality favor you being American. So to a glance, I was American. And the way people looked at me, the sympathy, the, the genuine compassion with which every pair of eyes that I registered looked at me in the wake of that attack is something I will never forget. The, 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 the human spirit for empathy is something that always astounds me. There are other human capacities that also always astound me, but that's one of the good ones. But yeah, we, we mark our time. It's been almost 20 years. And, and watching the world change over that time has been a source of, of so much anxiety for so many people, for, for many, many people. Watching, for example, a completely inexcusable war and a completely immoral war be fought in Iraq. Watching the, the, the social discourse during the Bush presidency, stifle almost to the point of where it was during the McCarthy era. It was, uh, it, was, it was a very anxious time, I remember. I remember after being home and going to uh, present papers in academic conferences, and they had this warning system. Uh, there was green, yellow, orange, and red alerts in the airports indicating danger of terror attack. And... Um, it was never, it was never green. Of course, you, you can't have it green because then people might not be scared. Resting state was usually yellow, but I noticed anytime it turned to orange, it was when something political was happening that it would have been a benefit to those in charge for people to be nervous. So they just bump up the terror alert to orange. It was an interesting thing to watch. I'm sorry if this is rambling a bit much. As I said, it's, uh, it's been a very pensive few weeks, and this is the first chance I've really had to to talk into the microphone for reasons other than work. And uh, and I guess in talking to you folks, I also kind of feel like I'm getting some things straight in my own head. Maybe maybe you'll find it interesting. I hope you do, because otherwise I'm wasting your time, and I apologize for that. But of course, there are other things in my mind as well. Like I said, this is a very personal, uh, very personal episode, because this past birthday. <laughs> This past September 11th, I turned 55. And, uh, and there are a few things in my mind there as well. I remember, <laughs> remember the ads when I was a kid of um, banks or financial institutions advertising a program called Freedom 55. If you put a certain amount of money away, you could retire by the time you were 55. And that seemed so old to me. And I guess that's understandable. You're 15 years old. You're 16 years old. Who's ever going to be 55? And uh, it doesn't seem so old to me now. In fact, I feel younger than I did 10 years ago. I'm not quite sure how that happened, but, but it did. But 55, 55. This is the first birthday I've had that my dad never got. My dad died when he was 54. And uh, he's someone about whom I often think. And he's going to come up in today's episode as well for a couple of reasons that I'll make clear. So that thinking of things that that I've been lucky enough to have that not everybody gets, such as a birthday. 
And I, I don't like birthdays. I ignore them. I've actually disabled the birthday notifications on my Facebook account so people won't wish me happy birthday. If I could do the same with Christmas, I would. But getting back to dad, as I said, he never got his 55th. And this simply makes me aware of how, how brief our time is. And I don't want to sound like a crusty old man, because as I said just a minute ago, I don't feel old. But by any reasonable measure, I am far past the halfway point. Um, and, and our camping trip to Algonquin Park in the summer of 1970 sometimes still seems like just yesterday. I remember a kid a year younger than me, his name was Jamie. And for two weeks, he was my best friend in the world. Well, for one week, for one week, he was my best friend in the world. I still remember him. But if we're talking about days and numbers and things that just throw us back on our own capacities for contemplation, the one that's been on my mind most for the last almost year now, and I'm sorry if this seems too self-indulgent, uh, feel free to turn it off, obviously I'll never know, but even if I did, my feelings wouldn't be hurt, was Thanksgiving of last year. There was a, a confluence of of significant days, significant dates, significant anniversaries that happened on, on Canadian Thanksgiving. I think I'd like to go there and just think about what that all means. I've been very pensive since that time for, for various reasons. One, <laughs> it was the uh, last Thanksgiving was the 25th anniversary of when I buried my dad's ashes. So he was in my mind as well. And Thanksgiving has always been my favorite holiday. One of the few I don't dislike. But I remember burying my dad's ashes by the banks of the Muskoka River in, uh, in Ontario at the roots of a willow tree. But it was also the fifth anniversary of when I scattered my mother's ashes on Oromocto Lake. A very different relationship, a very different ceremony, a very different ritual, each befitting the person to whom it was addressed. So both of my parents were in my mind um, at that particular time. But also... That was the day, the exact day, on which I had lived the exact same number of days that my father got. So all three of those things came together on that single day. And how, how could a person not be thoughtful under those circumstances? And honestly, I was also going through the tail end of what I now recognize as a nervous breakdown. I had actually wanted to get this program going a year ago, but I was not capable. So having all of those thoughts in my mind, and of course, on, on Thanksgiving, a day devoted to gratitude. If you want to think about things that inspire gratitude, well, those three things coming together, burying both of your parents and living the exact same number of days that that, that, that one of your parents, and the one to whom you were closest, got. Every day after that is a gift. Every single day after that is a gift. But of course, these are all just arbitrary numbers. They only matter because I say they do. Again, I, I don't do the whole cosmic pattern thing. Meaning is something humans do. Meaning is a human activity. This is part of the activity of my brain that I'm sharing with you. So I'm not reaching for anything. I'm, I'm looking inward and seeing what I find. And what I find is that every day is a gift. All of it. All of it. Even the bad ones. And I say that as a person who has occasionally very seriously contemplated harming himself. 
Obviously, I'm glad I didn't. Otherwise, I wouldn't be having this lovely chat with you folks. But all of these things together, I'm not quite sure how to draw them together. And this is why another one of the reasons why I haven't recorded these thoughts over the last couple of weeks, even though they've been sort of plaguing me. I haven't known what story they tell. I haven't known what story to make them into. And I find I still don't. Maybe it will emerge in the editing. But one thing I keep being drawn back to is, is questions of meaning, which questions of meaning occupy me all the time anyway. I, I teach literature. It's an occupational hazard. But the more I look into these questions, the more I understand that, that meaning-making is one of those fundamentally human things, and not to say that other non-human animals don't also do it. I suspect they do, some of them at least. But those raw elements of, of things that don't mean anything in themselves, and by that phrase, things that don't mean anything in themselves, sorry, it's a clause. Yes, I'm obsessed with grammar. I'm also teaching a course in the history of English language. It's kind of on my mind. I mean everything. The death of my father doesn't mean anything in itself. Death of my mother, nothing. 9-11, not meaningful. COVID-19, not meaningful, unless we decide that it is. And the difference between deciding and not deciding, individually and collectively, is, is I think a very important one, because there's nothing forcing us to care. There's nothing forcing us to decide that things matter. But where they matter and how they matter, that's, that's all us. That's all us. There's no other option that anyone's been able to successfully or forcefully demonstrate. Lots of words, not a single shred of evidence. So nothing, effectively. And I guess this might bring me back around to that optimism that I found myself feeling this past spring. And I guess when it started to go away was when, when the really, again, this is south of the border, when the profoundly draconian responses to the, uh, the demonstrations in Black Lives Matter of people simply demanding some kind of social equality, which is long, long, long overdue. And perhaps also I'm just feeling a little bit worn down because the border closure has, uh, has prevented me from seeing my fiancé for almost seven months now, and, and I have no idea when I'm going to see her again. And yes, that is very fatiguing. But again, to bring it back to questions of meaning, questions of meaning, of course, are questions of narrative, aren't they? What stories are we going to tell? One of my early thoughts in this, because of course I have a daughter, she was in grade seven when things closed down. So she's in grade eight now. And her entire generation is being shaped by this. What stories will they tell? What will they remember? 9-11 was before their time. They will, they will never know any more of that than I did of the Kennedy assassination, which happened two years before I was born. But this they know, this they're living. And I don't know how it will shape them. My daughter's school is uh, is open. They're they're doing in-person schools. They've taken some precautions, but of course they don't socialize at school. They they have to stick with their classes. Those are the people with whom they are closeted for the year, basically. So the experience of school has changed. And of course, as an educator myself, you know the experience of school for my students has changed too. We don't get together face to face. I've been to campus 
um, oh, maybe four times since spring. My office is mostly a place where I keep books I don't have room for in my apartment, which is where I do my job. And of course, my job keeps me thinking about what is, what is going on. Um, I was making a lecture today about the Iliad and had to keep bringing it back to the ways in which we can find common ground, the ways in which we need to reach out to each other, and the consequences of not doing so. The, uh, the alienation from each other, the alienation from ourselves that, that can so easily happen when hard lines are drawn, when, when the other, when people different from you are demonized, made into something less than human, as so much of our very tribal social discourse these days does manage to do, and I am not guiltless of that. So what stories are we telling ourselves? What stories do we want to tell ourselves? And what's the correlation of our stories to fact? Somewhere, somewhere, somewhere in there, if our stories don't touch base with things that we can measure, with things that we can confirm, we're in trouble. And increasingly, I think our political narrative is doing exactly that, placing, in many cases, ideologies, wishful thinking, above measurable facts above expertise. This is why the border is closed. Because so many in that deeply benighted country have been so betrayed by those who have undermined their education, those who have poisoned their social discourse, that they actually see wearing a mask, the demand that they wear a mask, as an assault on their freedoms. And... Speaking as someone who does his best to cultivate a broadly communitarian ethos, the notion that we're not just responsible for ourselves, but we are genuinely responsible for each other, which is part of the underlying political theory in, in Canada, actually, to see the utter selfishness of, of the anti-maskers and to see the body count there now up over 200,000 because people don't want to wear masks. People won't listen to the, the real expertise, the general consensus in the medical fields. It's, it's infuriating. It's infuriating. I don't know if or when the world will ever go back to the way it was. I hope it doesn't. I really hope it doesn't. One of the things that I and many, many people, I'm not unique in this, have found is that the necessity of slowing down has underlined how frantic life was and how, how unnatural and unconducive to well-being that perpetual franticness is and how, how on the one hand inhuman and on the one hand so solely stupidly human, the demand that we be like that. The notion of seeing busyness as a virtue. How ridiculous that is. How unhealthy that is. So how do I wrap this up? Well, speaking as I must, <laughs> as a humanist, it's how I've labeled myself, um, those questions of meaning I find very liberating. I find the freedom to make meaning 
the freedom to embody meaning, to be a source of joy. I get involved in many conversations with people who assert and always without evidence that in the absence of some transcendent meaning giver that I may as well just die. To which the best response I can give is, fuck you, I don't want to. The urge to live is its own justification. It doesn't need to be philosophically justified any more than the need to breathe needs to be philosophically justified. It's something that we do. Justifying where morality comes from is kind of like justifying where arms come from. It's something that we do. It's an attribute of us. And the same is true of the making of meaning. And I guess I keep coming back to this because there are competing narratives, big, big competing narratives in our culture right now. And the question of who gets to tell the story of our culture is very, very much up in the air. And this may sound naively idealistic, which are not words I use about myself all that often. I'm kind of a curmudgeon. But I am convinced that the grand narrative of our culture, which we're always in the process of making, if that doesn't have a strong thread of compassion, I don't think we will be worthy to survive. We will no longer be who we have been. And maybe that is what's been tugging at my mind these last couple of weeks with all of these arbitrary numbers floating around in my head and looking back on significant dates and asking, what does it mean? Why does it matter? It matters because every single one of those is a touch point where we can put, put ourselves in someone else's shoes. Where was I? Well, where were you? These are the people I've lost. Who have you lost? And obviously it hurt me, so obviously it must hurt you too. And if we lose track of that, and there are big swaths of our society now that seem determined to make us lose track of that, then I do think we will be lost. And it's for that reason, I guess, that I close every episode with, with the words sincerely meant, be kind to each other. 